That was the garbage dump for the city. And in that garbage dump, there were places where people had hollowed out spaces and they lived there. And what they survived on is either what they could dig out of the trash and the garbage, or the things that maybe they would come across and then could sell on the streets. It is a terrifying life, and it's very difficult. So many of these kids have no families, or the family dynamics are so terrible that they can't be with a family. So they try to survive on the streets. It's a very devastating, hungry, terrifying existence. And in order to survive, they get what's called yellow glue. And it's in Coke bottles, and these children sell funds to get enough money to buy the glue, and then they huff this glue so that they can get high enough and sort of sedated enough that they don't feel the pain and the fear and the hunger. These are the kids that Michael met and wanted to provide a way to, to comfort, to housing, to shelter, and most importantly, to our God, Jesus Christ. So he developed, and it was in 1998, shortly after he arrived, that Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras. It was a time of catastrophic devastation. There was little or nothing left of this city. And so Michael remained there in order to reach out and minister and help the people and the children. And he became very uh, committed to helping these street kids to have some avenue of hope and shelter and to be led to the Lord. And so he started in a home, bringing the boys off of the street. Now this was very challenging sometimes because they usually did not want to come. And Michael, I'm sure, can tell you more about how often and how long it may take to get one of these children recruited. So the goal, so to speak, is to get the kids off the street. We want them to learn God's love and the spiritual and emotional and the academic and the physical resources so that they can become servant leaders of their families, of their community, and their society. The term, or the name, MICA Project, comes from MICA 6. And it basically says, he has shown you, man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? He requires that you act justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. It is my distinct privilege to introduce Michael Miller, who does all of these things in the glory of our Lord. Thank you. Yes. Después de la canción de Randy Mayfield, creo que debo predicar mi sermón en español. ¿Sí? ¿Verdad, Israel? Sí, está bueno. Okay. I said, after Randy's song, I feel like I should preach my sermon in Spanish today, but maybe not, right? <laughs> Speaking of Randy, uh, 
we talked about 1998 starting the MICA project, but God laid the seeds for that much, much earlier. My family joined Central Presbyterian Church in St. Louis when I was eight years old, and Randy was already ministering there. You must have been like 16 maybe at the time, right? <laughs> Randy was the missions pastor in our church for 44 years, and he allowed me as a young child and teenager that to have my heroes be missionaries. He introduced me to missionaries from all over the world, and they were my heroes. It was better than uh, whoever, Michael Jordan, or whoever was back then in the day. Um, and it's thanks to Randy. When, I, when God laid it on my heart to move to Honduras in 1998, he was the first person that I sought out for advice and wisdom and guidance. So Randy, thank you for being a part of the MICA project from the very beginning. And you're originally from Ontario, just up the road, is that right? So welcome home as well. I do want to start today by telling a story of a street kid. We're going to be reading out of the Gospel of John chapter 4, if you want to have that open as well as I tell this story. Let me make sure I have this going. There we go. So I want to tell you a story about this young man named Axel a street kid named Axel. But before I do that, that term street kid is such a strange term, so I want to describe what that means a little bit. A street kid may be a 15-year-old who has fled his home, escaping drug addiction, violence, domestic abuse, extreme poverty, for the safety of the streets. Isn't that crazy that the streets would be the safe alternative for a kid? Or maybe a street kid is a young girl who has to go to the downtown area of Tegucigalpa every single day in order to beg enough money. Maybe she's not even allowed to return to the shack where her family lives until she begs a certain amount of money. That is another kind of street kid. But Axel falls into a third category. He's basically the kind of street kid who was born and raised on the streets. Both of Axel's parents were gang leaders, and when Axel was just a young boy, his dad was murdered in gang-on-gang -gang violence, and his mom disappeared out of fear, never to be seen again. And so the only place Axel could find to live were the streets of Tegucigalpa. He fled his home at the age of nine, and the streets became his new home. That street corner is where we first met Axel. As a part of our ministry, the Micah Project, we go downtown and we minister to the kids. We build trust with them. Uh, Becca was telling Nico on the way here, make sure you know that it's the kids' choice to come into Micah. We don't kidnap them off the streets or anything like that. And it's very true. And the kids learn to love the Micah Project and our team, but not Axel. Whenever we would go and visit his street corner, he would always cross to the other side of the streets as we worked and met and loved the other group of kids in his little group. He never wanted anything to do with us. I mean, after the life he had lived, why would he possibly trust any adult, right? But, you know, one night we were out later at, after 8 p.m. Uh, giving some food to the street kids, talking with them. A lot of them were already pretty high on the yellow glue uh, that you described so well. And we got there, 
And Axel came up to me and he got straight to the point. He said, I'm going to move into the Micah house tomorrow. He was only 12. He had this weird mix of little kid and tough guy in his voice. And sure enough, the next day, Axel showed up at the gate of the Micah project with a raggedy little backpack with every single possession he's ever owned in it. Those first few months, Axel used to come and sit at, by my desk uh, in the Micah house, and I was doing my work, and he started to draw. He loved to draw buses. He loved to talk about buses. Buses were his favorite topic. One time as he was sitting there drawing, he said, without even looking up from his drawing, Michael, my mom was killed by the gangs a few months ago. Opening up his heart just a little bit, but still guarding a deep well of hurt within. A few weeks later, he was drawing a car. That's actually the car. And he was working really hard on it as I, as I was working at my desk. He asked me how to spell my name, and he wrote Axel and Michael on the drawing. And then as he finished, he gave me a quick hug, and he said, Michael, you're like the dad I never had. That was my reaction, too. <laughs> that statement coming out of the sad and lost little boy sank way deep down into my heart and made its home there. And you know, when we think about Jesus' mission in the Gospels and our mission as the church in 2024, that statement from Axel is a pretty good starting point. The dad I never had is a perfect description of humanity without God. Our mission as the body of Christ is to invite them to know their one true Father, the one who will never forsake or abandon them. I've been a missionary in Honduras for 25 years, and God has given me the incredible privilege to work and to love and to guide kids like Axel. But you know, my definition of what it means to be a missionary has changed a lot over those 25 years. When I first moved to Honduras in my 20s, I was convinced that God wanted to use my strength to do his kingdom work. I'd been a Christian all my life, graduated from some of the best Christian schools. God wanted to use me to do big things. But these last few years, God is teaching me new lessons about what it means to be his missionary. And that is God often uses our weakness and our vulnerability as much as our strength to do his kingdom work in us and through us. I know we love to hear inspiring stories and about the big things that God is doing through missions, and he certainly chooses to act that way. But in the Micah Project's work with street kids who are some of the most vulnerable and rejected human beings on this planet, God has been showing us over and over again that he wants to use our vulnerability as well as our strength to introduce them to the dad they never had. So there's a moment in the Gospels, in John chapter 4, if you are there, where Jesus, exhausted and thirsty, just stops. Away from the growing crowds, he engages a woman whose lifestyle has caused her to be rejected, living on the margins of her society. By engaging her through his own vulnerable need, he breaks down multiple layers that should separate them. And she is able to see clearly 
who he is. So let's spend these next few minutes reflecting on the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 4 and going down through verse 14, uh, the initial part of this story, and then I'll be referring to a couple more verses uh, so that you can keep the, the Bible open uh, as, we, as we do this. So hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is the word of the Lord. In the minutes I have remaining, I want to look at three things that Jesus does in this remarkable encounter. We'll see how Jesus stops, how Jesus needs, and finally, how Jesus offers true restoration. Before we get into that, let's just say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is a beautiful thing. We pray that today we could sink deeply into this truth to see more about you, to see more about how you loved this world and more about how this world needs you to teach us about the dad we never had. Guide our thoughts and our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing Jesus does is stop. He and his disciples had been engaged in the hard work of ministry in Judea, and it was becoming known to the authorities at the time. And you know, several times in the other Gospels, it says his time had not yet come. Jesus' time had not yet come for the encounter with the authorities, and so he and his disciples leave, and they head towards Galilee. It's interesting in verse 4 that it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because if you studied the Gospels, you know that often Jews would bypass Samaria when they're going from Judea to Galilee or vice versa because of the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They would just go around it. But the Gospels say that Jesus had to go through Samaria and some commentators suggest that he had to go through Samaria 
because of this divinely appointed encounter with the woman at the well. And what a beautiful thing it is that this passage tells us that Jesus is tired from his long journey. You know, I loved all of the songs today, crown him with many crowns. All of the songs today described the majesty of the kingdom of our God. And I love that as we understand, and we'll never truly understand the majesty of God's kingdom, we also know that Jesus gave that up. Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And here's a perfect example of that. He sends his disciples into town so he can have a moment to rest. And Jesus stops. There's no miracles. There's no sermon. There's no big crowd. He's sitting and resting, and along comes this Samaritan woman. Many of uh, commentators believe that the reason she came alone to the well in the heat of the day is because she was rejected by the rest of her people because of her lifestyle, which Jesus describes to her further down in this passage. Jews did not speak to Samaritans, and a Jewish rabbi would never speak to a Samaritan woman. And yet Jesus, even in his moment of exhaustion, sees a woman in need. It's interesting. The Micah Project has a beloved social worker named Wendy. She's a Honduran social worker. And she is the one every week who leads our team into the downtown areas where there's pockets of street children to develop those relationships with them. And you know, Tegucigalpa's plazas are busy places. You can even see back in the background all the people, all the hustle and bustle moving here and there and everywhere. But the group of street kids in these plazas have kind of gotten stuck there. To the people passing by day after day, the kids just become part of the scenery. They see them, but they don't really see them. And you know, the way Wendy reaches these kids makes some people really uncomfortable. Several times a year, we have groups come and visit us from the United States, as you all did in 2015, and spend a few days with us, and we always take you downtown to meet the street kids. When you see these kids on the streets, your first instinct is to want to help. You want to do anything you can to fix their problems. But Wendy doesn't start out by fixing. She starts out by sitting. She'll sit on a bench with a couple of street kids for what seems like hours and just talks with them, listens to them hears their stories. Sometimes our visitors, especially from the United States, start to get a little antsy. Why are we still sitting here? <laughs> but everything about Wendy says, I'll stay here as long as it takes for you to feel seen and heard. We want to be doers. We want to be healers. We want to be fixers. But often we are simply asked to be sitters to sit with the one in need, and to see them. Jesus does that so beautifully in this passage with the Samaritan woman. She expected to be completely ignored by this mysterious Jewish rabbi. She even exclaims when he asks her for the water in verse 9, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. 
how can you ask me for a drink? I love that John puts in the little, uh, the little, the little parentheses that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But just by stopping and seeing, Jesus begins to break down the walls of mistrust that have been built up for generations. His father uses his faithful obedience to change a life. And then even in a more amazing way, Jesus doesn't just stop, but he expresses a need. That is, to me, just an incredible thing. From this lady who is on the lowest rungs of her society, an outcast woman from an outcast people, Jesus asks her for a drink of water. The Savior of the world sat down by a well and asked a rejected woman for a drink of water. Why would he do that? We know from Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He could have waited, right? He could have waited for his disciples to come back from town where they were buying food and they could have handled the whole thing and no need to ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman. He didn't wait, though. He asked, and the woman is shocked. How can you ask me for a drink, she says. You know, if we look at the purity laws for Jews, and especially Jewish rabbis, he would not have even been able to share a recipient or a cup with her. Otherwise, he would have been unclean. And yet, he breaks through all those barriers with one simple request. Jesus became vulnerable for a purpose. And we ask this Samaritan woman for help. He breaks through generations of separation and clears the way to reach her soul. At the Micah Project, we have a young man who graduated from our project named Arlie. John knows a lot about Arlie, because Arlie was a tough kid. He came into Micah at the age of 12, his mom was in prison at the time, generations of alcoholism in his family, and he was a confused little boy. He did well at Micah for the most part. <laughs> Not perfect, but well. I'm looking at John over there because he had a lot of the brunt of Arlie in his life. <laughs> uh, managed to graduate from high school, but then afterwards he stumbled back into the alcoholism that destroyed generations of his family. He left Micah and ended up back in his old life. Those were terrible years for him, but with a lot of courage on his part and tons of patience and love, especially from John and Becca Bell, Arlie picked up the pieces of his life and started over. He went through rehab. He decided he wanted to go to culinary school. He went to culinary school in El Salvador. Didn't he live with your mom, Izzy? Izzy and Jenna are other Micah missionaries that are here with us today in El Salvador and graduated as a chef. In 2019, he got a job on a cruise ship, not out of Miami or Galveston, out of Barcelona, Spain. And so Arlie would ply the waters of the Mediterranean, sending us pictures with the Colosseum in Rome and all that. This ex-street kid from Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And he wrote partway through his time and said, there is a job for a lifetime on this ship. What year did I say that was? What happened in 2020? Yeah. 
All those big old boats got parked, didn't they? So Arlie came back to Honduras, not having a job. Every single restaurant in our country was shut down. Tight, tight, tight. He ended up taking over the kitchen of the Micah house. And then, without us even knowing it, he founded a culinary school in the kitchen of the Micah house. <laughs> Thank you very much. I take credit for it now, but I knew nothing about it. He would bring, every time I walked in there, another Micah grad who had lost his opportunity during COVID was in there with Arlie. And I was like, oh yeah, he's just helping out. Then there was another one and another one. There were five or six guys in the kitchen and Arlie was teaching them how to be chefs. Amazing, right? (laughs) Arlie made an amazing discovery. God had used his own hard past and it sounded, I made the cruise ship thing sound pretty romantic, but when you're a third chef on a cruise ship, you have to serve salad to 3,000 people. Basically, you're just chopping onions all day. So, but that discipline, along with his life, made him the perfect instructor for our culinary program. And our guys implicitly know if Arlie can do it, we can do it. The younger boys at the Mike House, our youngest guys are 11 and 12 years old, also realized something was special was happening in our kitchen. So in all their free time, they began to spend time in the kitchen with Arlie and the other guys he was teaching And that morphed into a formal culinary school for every single boy at Micah. And you know, we learned something amazing through that. We discovered that the culinary program goes well beyond just teaching a new skill to our guys. Because these kids, I mean, they're so cute, right? But they've been taught by society that they are worthless. No better than the street dogs and the street trash in downtown Tegucigalpa. But you should see their faces when they spent all day in the culinary program making some amazing dish, then they bring it in to their favorite taste tester. (laughs) Reason why I can't wear a tie today is because I discovered my button would not button up here. So thank you very little, Arlie. Um, And then you taste it, and you're so happy, and they realize that they've done something beautiful for another human being. And that is so transformative. These two, that's David and Misael, came into my office one time at 9.30 in the morning, and Arlie had been teaching them how to make sushi, and they wanted me to try their sushi, and I was thinking, oh, breakfast sushi, awesome. (laughs) But they wanted to watch me eat it, and of course, you know, that's going to happen. And just to see the joy in their face was so transformative. (laughs) It's funny going back to the gospel passage. John, I read it several times. John actually doesn't ever tell us if she gave Jesus the water or not. (laughs) Go back and read it. Um, When he says, everyone who drinks living water will never thirst again. It changes the whole topic of conversation. And they don't even say if he goes back to the water, but I like to think that she did. I like to imagine that she gave him the drink of water, and for the rest of her life, whenever she told the story, she said, when I was at the lowest point of my life, I gave a drink of water 
to the Savior of all people. What a beautiful thing. I don't know about you, but I often fall into the trap of counting all the ways I'm helping people. In my position at Micah as the director, I want to be seen as a warrior fighting on behalf of the street population. I don't always want to be seen as a vulnerable servant. But I've seen over and over again throughout these years in Honduras, in the times where we're seeing as many losses as we are victories, or the times where I'm exhausted, my strength and my faith are flagging, it's often in those times where we see God work so clearly through us. I wonder if we need to consider more carefully how God can use our weakness. It might be tempting to say, I just don't have time to help others who are in need, or I don't have the finances to help anyone right now, or I've just been feeling too tired because of what's going on at work, or I just don't think I have any talents that can, God can use for mission. But what would happen if we started to pray, God, can you use my sense of being overworked to bring me and others closer to you? Can you use my sense of poverty? Can you use my tiredness? Can you use my perceived lack of talent to expand your kingdom? Guess what he's going to say? Absolutely. If we see our human weakness as kingdom strength, he'll surprise us about how he will use us even when we're at our most vulnerable. Finally, Jesus offers real restoration. When the Samaritan woman was trying so hard to figure out what he meant by living water, Jesus makes one more statement to open her eyes of who he is. This is down in verse 15. He lets the Samaritan woman know that he knows all about her past. He reveals to her who he truly is, and she knows that there's a prophet standing in front of her. Finally, she says, all the way down in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus, Jesus declares to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The woman drops everything. She doesn't even take her water jug when she runs back to her village to tell everyone who she just met. How do they respond in verse 39? Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this rejected, lonely woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Nowhere in this text does it say Jesus did any of the powerful signs and wonders and miracles he did elsewhere. No mention of sight being restored, of the lame walking, no mention of leprosy being healed. But because Jesus took time to sit with this vulnerable woman, her town came to know their Savior, the dad they never had. They came to know their father, beyond the divisions of culture and religion that kept them separate for so long. You know, living in Honduras, it's easy to get overwhelmed by poverty. 65% of the country lives in poverty, and 42% live in extreme poverty. 
It's easy for us at the MICA Project to focus on physical needs of those who are struggling to survive on the streets. We see kids like Axel slowly dying on the streets, and we want to do anything we can to help them leave the streets behind to flourish. But even more importantly, we're able, we want to be able to see the guys reconciled to their Heavenly Father thanks to the living water that Jesus offers. That's ultimately what Jesus encounters with the woman at the well. That's ultimately what it was all about. We don't actually hear if her daily life got any better. We do hear, however, how powerfully things changed when she accepted the living water that leads to eternal life. It can take years for our boys in the program to understand that truth. All of the broken trust and the damaged relationships and the trauma and the addiction can be a huge roadblock for them to understand God's unending love. That was Axel's case. From the time he joined the Micah Project, how many times do you think he probably left? 20, 25, going back to the streets and beyond. And believe me, if you want to feel vulnerable and powerless, sit underneath a bridge with a kid that you love and realize that you have no magic wand to convince him that he is worth so much more thanks to his Savior's love than that bottle of yellow glue. I don't know who the axles are in your life. I think if we take time to stop and think and open our eyes, all of us have an axle or two in our lives. People, friends, family, who just seem to want that yellow glue rather than the living water that our Savior offers. I pray that God will give you the strength to stop, to sit with your axle, to be vulnerable with him or her, and through that vulnerability to point them to the one whose mercies never end. Just because Axel's back on the streets does not mean we have crossed him off the list. Because God has not crossed him off the list. We'll continue to sit. We'll continue to be vulnerable to him and with him until he gets it. He's not quite there yet. He's 20 now. Still not sure God loves him enough and God's love is big enough to cover all the shame that he feels from pretty much a lifetime on the streets. But the next time I run into him, and we run into him often, <laughs> I'm not going to shame him. I'm not going to count the amount of times he's crashed and burned. We're not going to express our frustration with him for being on the streets, even though we're kind of frustrated with him. Until he gets to the point of truly understanding who he is, we're going to keep sitting with him, we're going to keep seeing him. We're going to keep loving him unconditionally. We will feel weak and helpless. Becca mentioned to Nick about kidnapping. Sometimes we like just to throw him in our van, tie him up, and throw him into the house until he's free from the addiction. Believe me, sometimes we'd like to do that. We will feel weak and helpless, but we'll continue to give that to God and we will continue to give Axel's life to God. 
you may be in a time in your life where you can invite people into your Father's kingdom with all the passion and energy of that woman at the well once she realized who Jesus was and she went running into her town to tell anybody who would listen. Or you may be in a season where you feel like you have nothing to offer. The beautiful truth is that God can use you in both of those seasons. And I pray that if you are in that second season, you'll have the strength to be weak and vulnerable for the axles in your life and to remember that God will use your weakness to reveal his mighty love. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray for Axel today. We pray that you would break through 20 years of hurt, abuse, trauma, addiction, and that you would open his eyes even today to the dad he never had. And Lord, those of us who are sitting in this room who have other kinds of axles in his, their lives, who are suffering or alone or in need of your love, Lord, empower us to work even in our weakness. Help us to be bold even in our timidity. Help us to be rich even in our poverty. To show your love, to show your power to this last world. Thank you for using us in our strength. Thank you for using us in our weakness. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.